Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now, take a breath or take a seat or just stop what you're doing because today's guest is someone that I've wanted on this podcast since day one. It's someone when I grew up, I absolutely adored his music. His band are one of my favourite of all time and he's responsible for writing some of my favourite lyrics ever. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Boyd from the absolutely incredible Incubus. This interview for me is personally one of my favourites that I've ever done. I am so thrilled to announce that he's on today's episode, but not only that, this is a two-parter. I was lucky enough to get over an hour and a half with Brandon, and we broke it down into two separate episodes. The first part focuses purely on music, influences, growing up, touring with Incubus and life behind his brand new solo album. The second part focuses more on mental health, ways of thinking and his artwork. So it all comes together beautifully as one and I can't wait to share it with you in just a few moments time. I still to this day listen to Make Yourself. Morning View is one of my favourite albums of all time. And if you are listening now and you haven't heard of Incubus, I actually don't believe you because they are one of the biggest bands of all time and I'm so, so thrilled that Brandon's been so accommodating with his time. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, I do like to touch base and talk about my last episode. I was joined by the amazing actor Nick Blood. An amazing interview and some of the response that I've seen has been phenomenal. So thanks so much to everyone that tuned in and provided me with some incredible feedback. But I think we need to focus purely on today. Brandon Boyd from Incubus. I've been spoilt with time from him and I've made the best of it. So I think the best thing to do is to get straight to the interview. And it still doesn't sound real when I say this out loud. But here's me and Brandon Boyd talking all things music. Hey, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good, thanks. Is it mega early for you over there? Um, no, it's like 9.15 in the morning. That's not too bad. You're an early starter. Yeah. I see the super Our... coffee. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where are you uh, calling from? I'm in from? the UK, so I'm in a place, Shropshire, which you probably don't know, but I remember the closest place you played to us is Wolverhampton. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think you played the Civic Hall and Wolfram and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I'm about... 45 minutes away from there nice gosh it feels like a, a lifetime ago last time we played in wolverhampton or anywhere in the uk for that matter yeah it's uh, i had tickets with my friends to see you last year in birmingham uh, and mm. we were like like faith no more and everything else we were like fuck we've got tickets amazing it wasn't that crazy rush and then yeah, yeah. everything's just collapsed amazing how quickly everything just changed what a remarkable period of time we've been living through, huh? It's insane. Like you, you can't, you couldn't ever describe it to anyone that hasn't been there and lived it. Like if you had said to yourself five years ago, there'll be this period of time for two years where you won't be able to do the things that you probably take for granted, like go to the cinema, go and watch a gig, mm. go and yeah. sit with your family at Christmas. And now it's like right. last year, I remember not seeing my family and not being able to go to gigs like yours and festivals, mm-hmm. like download mm-hmm. and all that it was all cancelled, which is insane. Right. Thought, don't worry next year it'll be back to normal and now we're here just about putting the tv on and hearing that we might not have it again this year or 2022 you said two years and i'm just uh i'm like looking for like wood to touch here we go uh knock wood i mean but it's like there's 
always the possibility that it'll just kind of keep droning on <laughs> for an indefinite period of time. I can only hope that that's not the case. I suppose that there's like, um, there's always a silver lining to be found amongst any circumstances, even the most dire of circumstances. And I'm, I'm sure you have found some in your experience as well. But one of the things that's been super interesting for me um, is this period of time, this last two years, it's like somebody like pulled different layers, like the onion got peeled back towards its core more than ever before, interpersonally, societally, culturally, psychologically, there was like, like the, like the, there were, it's as if we were experiencing life through a sequence of veils, you know, yeah. like there was like a, like things were being obscured and they were so obscured that we weren't even really aware of it anymore. And then as the pandemic has droned on, it's like more and more veils getting pulled down and you're seeing more and more clearly and it's more and more shocking as it goes along. It's really wild. It's, it's absolutely fascinating from certain perspectives and other ways it's infuriating to, to endure, but yeah, you're, you're obviously you're healthy and yeah, warm in I, your um, beautiful I little room there. I, I haven't suffered. Uh, I've had friends around me that have had it and luckily they've just had like a really bad cold. Um, you know, they just feel yeah. like the symptoms of like the flu. Nobody I know is luckily passed away or anything. So it's, 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 it's not too bad, but as I'm sitting here right now, the new variants out and people are now talking mm. about maybe Christmas being put down on lockdown again. And a third lockdown right now in the UK would just cripple everything. It's yeah, it's really tough to try and process what that's going to you know do to us interpersonally, societally, culturally. Once again, um, it, yeah. It's so complex. It's really wild. And the, the biggest shame of it all to me is that what could have been a, sometimes when there are these sort of grand calamities, like a, a, a pandemic, though, our generation, last couple of generations hasn't really experienced one, to be sure. Um, sometimes they can be like these unifying events yeah. where like I experienced, I was in New York City like literally blocks away from the twin towers when those planes hit i was so close that like my hotel shook and the car alarms wow. all around us went off and um i experienced i, I my first my, my my first feeling and one of the things i was afraid of was that new york was going to descend into kind of like this riotous chaos yeah and people would just be like every man for himself kind of a thing and the exact opposite thing happened like it was this incredible unifying experience where people that would have run you over in the crosswalk the day before were pulling over and handing out masks yeah. and handing out water and everybody just leaned into each other. And the tragic thing about this situation is to, in, in my opinion, one of the tragic things is that it's so swiftly became politicized yeah. and we all factioned out into our little tribal camps and now we're just sort of like yelling at each other from our respective echo chambers. And it's not good. No, like the things so that have many, been happening are destructive. You know, there's so many divides over here with people not wanting the vaccination and people wanting the vaccination and people then being, you know, the, the fact that we're now having our fourth vaccination against this. And then if you yeah. go to a certain event, you must prove that you've had one or otherwise you're not allowed. And everyone's yeah. entitled to their own opinion it's just really difficult there's no unity like you said with september 11th people came together this yeah. this feels a shame i mean the music side of it 
Um, we had a test festival for download over here this year. Mm. Really, really filtered down festival. 10,000 people instead of the 80,000, which you're probably used to when you've been here. Right. Yeah. Really small. Uh, two small stages. Everyone had to do a lateral flow test to go in. But mm -hmm. the sense of unity for that moment, for those two days, was unbelievable. Everyone came together. Everyone was just grateful to see. It didn't matter who played. It could have been any band in the world, unsigned yeah. or the biggest band in the world. Yeah. Everyone was just so grateful to witness a performance again with people. That's amazing. I, I wish that we could have more of that kind of thing. And it's, you know, one of the, the strange, ironic cruelties of the, the pandemic is that it's sort of stopped us from doing those types of things for the most part. And um, sorry, I have a very enthusiastic dog. Hey. Hey, little dude. His name is little dude. That's hey, little dude. Name. Hey, I'm trying to teach him, uh, shut the fuck up. It's like, a, <laughs> an actual command, but it's not working. <laughs> no, you gotta go with um, the old fashioned shut up. Yeah. Hey, hey, shut up. Hey, little dude. Anyway, um, getting together with thousands of strangers to celebrate music is a modern ritual that we've yeah. all we've almost come to take for granted. It's like, oh, my favorite band's coming into town. I'm going to go see them. And it didn't become, uh, I don't think we really realized how important and how beautiful and how necessary that's that kind of event, that kind of ritual is to us singularly, but also collectively until it was taken away from us. Yeah. And that's something that's been really like rushing to the forefront for me. It's, you know, playing music and playing music with, you know, 10,000 of my friends and family, it's my version of like church. Like I don't go to yeah. church. The closest I go to church is like I surf yeah. or I walk through the woods or I go to a concert or I play a concert. And um, thankfully here in California, uh, you're allowed to go surfing now and you're allowed to go for a walk outside. But in the early days of lockdown, no, if you paddled out, you got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would confiscate your surfboard, cuff you wet in your wetsuit, fine you a thousand dollars. And then I had buddies who like, like braved it through the early days of lockdown. I was going to say, were you sat there looking at some of the waves thinking, is that one worth a thousand dollar fine? Oh, you better believe it. There were days <laughs> where I just felt like I had to go for a drive and I'm very blessed. I live about, you know, 10 minutes from the ocean here in the Santa Monica mountains and uh, the we have the thing called Surfline, and you basically can sign on and look at live cameras of your favorite surf spots just to yeah. check how the surf is. And there were a few days, or a handful of days, actually, where it was like perfect weather was perfect, surf was perfect, and you would see these images that you'd never see under normal circumstances, which isn't like an empty lineup. Where and so we drive down there, and you'd see the, an empty lineup that's normally has a hundred people fighting over waves, and there's one dude. <laughs> and then there's the cops waiting for him on the beach with the bullhorn like get out of the water and he's just like you yeah. know like, it's it's worth it a thousand Thank bucks. You. i'm enjoying this wave and if i'm gonna pay a thousand dollars i'm staying out here for another half hour yeah exactly so to answer your question i i, I kind of wish that i had because that would have been not only worth a thousand bucks but a really funny story Amazing. tell your kids one day
Um, so real, realistically, I don't know if you've had any time to do any research. I wouldn't expect you to. But Mark and Me is a one-on-one podcast. It's been going for four and a half years. Um, mm. I've been very lucky to have some amazing guests like Anthony Hopkins, Mads Mickelson, Kevin amazing. Smith, Aubrey Plaza, Kat Von D, a massive mix of people. Um, mm. You're someone I've wanted to speak to for a long time. I hoped that we could have sorted it when you were in the UK last year, but with COVID, obviously, it's it, it meant that you couldn't even come over to the UK, never mind cancel some dates. You just didn't yeah. even come over. So I want to say, to start with, a massive thank you for taking the time to come on and make the best of this technology we've got at the moment. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, that list of guests is pretty great. I haven't seen Kat Von D in quite a few years, but... Uh, uh, she's a pretty great girl I, she's I've, all loved uh, up and she's happy and she's got a son yeah. and she's just enjoying life and she deserves it so when she came on and now she's doing music you know she's touring and she's doing everything she really? can yeah she's got a good album out. it's brilliant it's very synth orientated 80s sounding it's brilliant that's so cool i gotta reach back out to her i haven't talked to her in, in quite a few years but um yeah my fond memories of her and she's also a fantastic artist so oh unbelievable yeah what I wanted to do today is for the fans out there is talk music, but also do touch base and talk about your art because I've had various artists on here. Some of the best in the world, I believe um, we've had UK artists and people that have just gone from literally becoming a poster artist for the biggest companies in the world now, like Marvel and Disney and all these big companies. Um, and obviously Anthony Hopkins came on and talked all about his art, which people don't know about. But yeah, to touch base on music, because a lot of people will tune in and want to talk and listen about your music, is what I do want to know is what shaped the kind of bands that you listen to today from your early days. So when you were growing up, can you remember those first tapes or vinyls you bought that made you go, fuck me, I want to be in a band. Like, this is the reason I want to do this. Absolutely. Yeah, there were um, quite a few. I, I feel actually pretty fantastically uh, fortunate to have been 15 years old in 1991. Um, we were just waking up from the 80s, which absolutely had its uh, you know lion's share of incredible music. And one of the first records... Actually, it was the first record that I ever bought with my own money. The first one that I sought out was um, The Cure, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. That record really nice. like it shifted my directionality as far as my musical tastes um, were concerned. Before that, I was, you know, obviously really enamored of lots of different bands and, and musicians and stuff, but it was more what I was in proximity to. It was... Uh, what my parents were playing in the car, what my older brother was listening to, my older sister. And so that was a lot more, uh, well, when my, when my parents were playing music in the car, it was like everything from the Beatles to Neil Diamond, Elton John, Billy Joel, um, a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber, a lot of musical theater stuff. So it was, it was pretty mixed up. And then my older brother was into like, like heavy metal. So I got my education in Iron Maiden and Motley Crue and nice. uh, the Scorpions and all these bands that, you know, that kind of came of age in the 80s. But turning 15 in 1991 and sort of starting to carve out my own musical tastes, that meant that in like in one sitting, I remember I saved up all of my like chore money and I went to our local record store and I bought um 
Alice in Chains, Dirt, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Oh wow! Nirvana, Nevermind. Fucking hell! Red Hot, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and um, so the, that in that handful. Wow! It was like I. It was it like I remember that year in particular. My mind was so successfully blown, and my sort of musical path got skewed so successfully that that was the same year that we started our band. Yeah. So, but I was also listening to, um, I just started getting into faith no more and Mr. Bungle and then Primus and then rage against the machine. And, um, but then I started like getting super into Bjork and PJ Harvey and, uh, gosh, I mean, the list goes on and on and it, it, it's incredible. I, I honestly can safely say that I would be nowhere without all of those albums and so many more. It, it's incredible to think that an album can change your life or that an artist can change your life, but it really, it's not an overstatement to suggest something like that. Um, those bands quite literally changed my life because they influenced me. And then, you know, my, my best friends who we started I started Incubus with in 1991 and uh, we did our very best to just like emulate what those bands were doing. And I think we did a, a good enough job that people were like, Oh, this band reminds us of this, this, and this, and this. And that was our first, you know, couple of releases, but by about 1998, 1999, we started to kind of find our thing. And then we've been off on our path ever since. But yeah, that's a good place to start, I suppose. I mean, listening <laughs> to that as those foundations of Red Hot Chili Peppers, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, you might as well throw Pearl Jam in as well, that sort of time. Absolutely, Soundgarden. Yeah. I mean, you don't get much better as a foundation, but do you remember those first shows you went to? Because obviously I remember having Nirvana Nevermind on tape and you know reading every lyric of Kurtz on the cassette yeah. and being obsessed and Metallica and all this, but... Do you remember that first gig you went to that made you think, okay, this isn't just a really good thing to listen to. I can see now that it translates to stage and it's even on another level. Like this makes my rib, you know, kind of shake. It makes the hair stick mm -hmm. up on my neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other part about that period of time um, and being, you know, fortunate to be 15 in 1991 was also the fact that I was in uh, Southern California. Yeah. And so all of those bands, came through LA a lot. So I saw all of those bands multiple times when they were like in their like heyday. And that also had a huge impact with seeing not only the, the, the bands and the performances and stuff. And really like, you know, as a kid, like you go and you dissect, you know, you're, you're, that's how we learn as, as you know, we're these, we're basically a great ape you know, yeah. we mimic each other. That's how we learn how to do stuff, everything basically. And, uh, so I was the, you know, little monkey in the audience, like clocking every move from every band member, <laughs> you know, like, basically learning how to sing while going to the concerts and singing along and watching the shapes that the singers would make with their, their mouths to get certain notes and all of it. It, it was so fascinating. Um, but yeah, uh, one gig that like changed it all. I, I think it would probably be like, I saw Rage Against the Machine before their first record came out uh, at the Whiskey A Go Go, which is like oh, a God. 600 person wow. venue. It's a famous little venue. The Doors yeah. used to play there all the time, but it's small, basically a bar. And the minute they started playing, um, 
it was really fucking loud and it was amazing but then the place just lit up it was it was insane i've been to a bunch of gigs at the whiskey a go-go i saw slayer there and i was terrified <laughs> it was a terrifying was, uh, experience one of my first gigs was i saw like green day and uh foo fighters on their debut tour but then my parents let me at like the age of 14 go off to Ozfest, and i was like okay this sounds cool got to see black sabbath and was but it's the first time i saw real proper heavy metal and I yeah. walked in and I was with my mates and all these bikers started running towards the stage. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. And it was Pantera starting with Cowboys from Hell and that riff started. I've never witnessed anything like it. And then following that, Slayer came on and I'm in the oh same God. boat as you. I was like terrified, but also <laughs> absolutely obsessed. Like, I don't care if yeah. I get punched right now because this is incredible. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like there, there is a very particular age range it's probably between like 13 and 18 when you go to a show and you can be terrified technically for your life but you're like yep. this is awesome somehow <laughs> i want to be i want to be closer to the thing and i don't you know i'm sure that you've been in your fair share of mosh pits but perhaps some of your listeners might not know because it's not quite the same anymore but like there was a period of time when uh in these giant sort of general admission shows uh, you would basically get like picked up off your feet yeah. and it was fun. You would just be in this like swell of human bodies. And uh, it was really, it was scary, but it was really fun. And then all of a sudden, like someone, you'd feel like your feet get pushed up from under you. And then all of a sudden you were floating on top of, of humans. <laughs> they call it crowd surfing, which I always hated that term being an actual surfer, but I suppose it's the closest way to describe what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I'm too old now. When, time. I, when, when I go to a festival or a yeah. gig now, I'm like, I'm standing back. I just want to watch. I want to see the people on stage. I want to hear it properly. I, I'm way too old to be down the front. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, I, I won't say that I'm too old. I basically just, my excuse is I'm spoiled rotten. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you want to come to the gig? Yeah, yeah. Can I watch from the stage? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stand by the no, sound like, guy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Incredible. Now, obviously, um, you've had an amazing career and you, it's not over yet. You know, you're, you're still touring and writing with Incubus and to go for nearly, you said 91. So we're looking at 30 years, which, you know, is insane. Bands like Deftones and yourself still keep going, still putting out great music and still look like you're having the best time of your life when you're touring. Now, what is the secret? Because there are bands out there that last three or four years, they get to their second album and the pressures just break them or mm. it's just too much. What is it do you think that stands out about Incubus that still every day you want to get up and you want to do that project and make it feel as fresh as the moment you sat and recorded Science in a studio or something else? You mm. know, you want to still go out there and put the the heart and soul into everything. The secret. What is the secret? Um I honestly don't know a good answer to that question. I, but you are right in the observation and or the assumption that uh, we are, that we care about it as much, if not more now than we ever did. It, there's something I think that must factor into the experience for us in that, um, I, I, maybe I could, I should just speak for myself. Yeah, I, I feel unbelievably, um, I, have, I have a really, really 
over almost overwhelming sometimes sense of gratitude um, at at the the opportunity to do this, but then uh, even more distinctly having had and 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 having the experience of being able to uh, express myself creatively and have a the experience of living a a, a life of of creative curiosity. And I think that that curiosity perhaps is what continues to drive um, the enthusiasm for the experience and wanting to continually um, explore the space. And that goes with the experience with Incubus, but that also factors into um, being an artist in general, I think, um, being a, you know, being a painter and also making music on my own, it, it's, I would make music with, with Incubus every single day if I could. Um, but, you know, we're all in our mid forties now and uh, the priorities start to shift as they should though, you know, like we're start they're starting to be like kids and families and things like that. I don't have kids of my own yet, but I, I hope to one day yeah. soon. And I know that that's going to probably pretty dramatically shift certain priorities around as well. But in the event that I can't make music with Incubus every day anymore, um, I still find myself curiously, you know, digging around in the proverbial sandbox of sorts. And uh, like during lockdown, I, I started writing music on my own. And then I connected with a, a really great songwriter producer named John Congleton and he and I wrote a record together and it's actually, it's my new solo record, which I just put out the first single about two weeks ago. Um, the song called pocket knife. And, yeah. I've heard uh, it. Yeah. And, uh, the whole record comes out in March and, but then I'm going to be on tour with Incubus starting in March, um, in the U S and it's just wild. I, so going back to that sense of gratitude, it, it feels incredible to have ever had people's attentions you know, to ever have had even 10 people's ear at a time, let alone hundreds of thousands or millions of people's uh, attention. Um, and I suppose that I'm, I'm drifting towards that greater and greater sense of gratitude, not only as like a, for lack of a better way of describing it, like a spiritual revelation, but there's also an understanding that living in a kind of quote, attention economy, yeah. it gets harder and harder and harder to actually get anyone's attention towards anything, even things that are potentially really important, dire, wh whatever you want to describe it as. Um, the more and more we go into this attention economy and an economy that's essentially governed by like artificially intelligent algorithms, it gets more and more difficult to put something out and uh, have any sense of guarantee that anyone's going to hear it or see it. And so, as we get further into that, I'm like, wow, we had a period of time where we literally had millions and millions of people's attention. And that's an amazing thing. What an incredible opportunity. So I'm just grateful for that. And then going back to your question, like, what's the secret? I, I also think that there, that might be part of it, like a, like a sense of gratitude that you hold on to. But then there's something else about learning how to navigate unusual experiences, in particular, the experience of uh, fame or celebrity. It, our culture, especially like in the West, you know, we tend to um, 
idolize celebrity and fame. We we put it on a pedestal of sorts that isn't necessarily good, in my opinion, um, because the experience of fame and or celebrity and having had little brushes with it throughout my life um, is dangerous. It's really dangerous. I don't think that the human ego is necessarily evolved to deal with an experience like that and come out of it alive. I mean, if you can, we can look at so many of my, my peers and my contemporaries in music and in art and it, it, it grabs people it takes them, you know, they step into, you know, snake pits of sorts and they can't get out. And um, I think that one of the things that's kept Incubus and, you know, also myself um, alive through the experiences that I've had, like an awareness that it's like, this is awesome. This is amazing to be successful in something is incredible. But if you don't learn to recognize it uh, simultaneously as a minefield, you're gonna you're gonna get hit and you're gonna get hit hard um does that make sense massively and i think it must be difficult because you've had the taste of it and you've been in touching distance and and lived some of it you know there's been days where you Mm -hmm. have been on a front of a magazine and you know people Mm -hmm. are just photographing you and doing this and it must be really difficult when you see people like kurt cobain or jeff buckley or these people that have unfortunately lost it and not being able to step back and see what was going on and be able to control it where I wonder how close you got to the point where if there was ever a point where you weren't aware and you're trying to get kind of sucked in and before you knew it you kind of have to step back otherwise it's going to be too late it must be really difficult to juggle Mm. yeah that I think that I think I had an an early experience of that that sort of cognizance of the dangers of it. And it was right when things started to kind of take off for us right around 1999 when our record Make Yourself came out. And I had grown so accustomed to uh, being uh, kind of like the underdog band. We we got a lot of amazing opportunities opening for bands, but things, things were steadily going in the right direction for us. But we never had a moment where it like had sort of skyrocketed before 1999. And when that happened, the minute we started getting airplay, um, like pretty wide airplay across formats in the US and and UK and Europe, um, we also started getting a lot of sort of FaceTime on MTV. And that really changed the metric pretty quickly. It It felt like it was overnight. It went from, we would have a gig and we could walk down the street and grab a sandwich. And then the days later after our, you know, first MTV appearance, it went from that to uh, we have a gig tonight and you can't walk down the street to grab a sandwich anymore. And it, it's a weird experience. And so I, uh, and then we were also still in this realm of like doing two and three shows a day. That was just sort of the pace that we were doing, which equated sometimes to like 10 and 12 shows a week. And so there was this experience of exhaustion on top of this new stressor of like, everyone's looking at you, you know? Um, so there was a moment when I was, uh, God, 24 years old, barely 25, where I was like bordering on kind of like a breakdown where I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm not sure that this is something that I can sustain. And I remember asking myself, like, how could anybody sustain this? I have a relatively 
robust psychology. I'm, I'm a sensitive person in certain regards, but for the most part, I'm, I have a, a relative anti-fragility, you know, that I've gained yeah. over many, many years. And I remember having that experience being like, this feels uh, untenable. This is not something I can, I can deal with. So I, but I'm, I feel very thankful that I had that experience early because it pushed me in the direction of um, self-care. And so I started yeah. learning how to meditate by the time I was about, I'd been experimenting with different meditation techniques from the time I was a teenager, but I really started taking it more seriously around 24 years old. And it, it also changed the metric pretty immediately within a matter of about a week. I felt like a different person and I felt like I could start to navigate this minefield a lot more successfully because I was uh, much more clear. It, it probably really was a point of sink or swim, wasn't it? Be honest to yourself now, because yeah. at mid twenties, you want the fame, you want every person in the world to want to know who you are. You want to be mm-hmm. the biggest band headlining the biggest festivals. But at the same time, that comes with such a cost and the way you took a step back and you found this meditation, you said it changed you within a week. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. epic. that's pretty epic because you could have been on the other end and just thought, let's just fucking live this rock and roll life that I've wanted. And the next thing you know, mm-hmm. you're burning out. You're trying to do these 10 shows a week and you're just, oh, I'll have an extra few nights out. I'll do a few drugs. I'll take a few drinks extra. And the next thing you know, you're yeah. just, well, you're just going to be battered, aren't you? Yeah. And that's part of what I also witnessed with so many of my, my friends and, and peers and contemporaries was that there when i started to ask around like what do you you know what's your experience been like and what do you do and and a lot of it was just like just medicate just take this and you'll feel better temporarily and um i could never really get on board with that i um there was some drug addiction in my family and there was uh obviously drug addiction all around me being on tour. It was just like yeah. literally anything you want, anything you can think of. It's like, oh yeah, I got a guy right down the street. We can get that for you. And the way that the, the industry is set up, it's not necessarily set up, or at least this is back then in the nineties um, and early two thousands. The idea of, of uh, self-care and uh, mental health, these just weren't phrases that were on our collective radar at that point. And so um, people were just like, I mean, even from like record labels and management and things like that were just, can we please get this guy something or get him someone to, it, it was all just, you know, they just wanted to kind of brush everything under the rug. And uh, that felt wrong to me as well. So um, yeah, I had to kind of learn to advocate for myself from a pretty young age, but I'm so happy that I did because I'm, um, Knockwood, I'm still alive as a result of it. And you touched base and and talked about your album next year, Echoes and Cocoons. Now, Mm. tell me if I'm wrong, but did this become about through lockdown and it started out that you wanted to do an album of covers and then you kind of played around and then decided the original material is priority. You got to work with a brand new producer and before you knew it, you had an album's worth of material. Yeah, that about sums it up. I have a, a pretty humble recording set up here at my house, but it's enough that I've been able to do the vocals to the last couple of Incubus projects here. And um, in some regards, I prefer kind of recording my vocals alone because I can be as um, 
particular and obsessive as I want to be. And I can record like a, a hundred background vocals and mix them myself together into these cool little pads and things that like we can use as textures. And um, that takes a lot of time in a expensive recording studio. And then there's other people sort of waiting and I've just gotten used to working here in that respect on my own. That was pre pandemic. So uh, once lockdown became a reality, uh, I just started learning other people's tracks that I'd been kind of enamored with over the years and recorded a few. I put out a few just like on my Instagram. I, I, I think the first cover I did was um, Goodbye Moon Men from uh, Rick and Morty. You know the cartoon Rick and Morty? Yeah, massive fan. Yeah. So the episode where the kind of cosmic fart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Remember the song? Yeah. It's kind of Bowie-esque song. Yeah, yeah. I remember, very. like, I, I saw the episode and I was like, "This is an amazing song." I know they're kidding, but it's really good. And yeah. so I just I learned it, and my girlfriend like filmed me on an iPhone playing it, it, and it was fun. But then I started, you know, getting a little more involved with the with the covers, and thought that was going to be the case. But then I ended up connecting with John Congleton, and he and I were just musing about making music and. I was like, let me send you some ideas. And he's like, and I'll send you some of my ideas. And then we just, you know, we put our heads together kind of like this. And we did it remotely yep. and digitally. And um, not very long thereafter, we had a bunch of really rad songs that really felt like there, it was something, like we'd created something fun. And so there are now only two covers on the record. The rest is original material. And it feels like a, feels like a really cool, fun interesting album it's it's a lot of the material from it was written at the kind of like the darkest point of lockdown so there's yeah. definitely some some longing on the album there's uh some uh i suppose dystopic material but there's also a lot of hope amongst it so yeah I, i'm i'm I, I really like the record i hope people like it as well um yeah. And with the album coming out and then you're going on tour of Incubus, is it something you think could transfer to stage? Is it something you'd love to do a tour of just this album and these songs and some of the covers that didn't make it? Have you got this kind of perfect project in your head where you think we could easily do this as a tour? Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine scenarios where I perform these songs live, you know, this being my third solo record, I actually have. Yeah quite a lot of material to share in the live sense. And I've only ever done, I think it was eight shows we did here in the States, but it was like 2014 or something. It was a long time ago now. Um, so in my, in my heart of hearts, I would love to, to do a series of concerts around this. And I'd love to take it places as well. Um, the first kind of opportunity I have to do so would probably be sometime in the spring. Uh, of 22 and god willing i'll be able to travel a little bit and maybe even bring some of the shows to the uk i think that would be a lot of fun incredible so there it is there's the first part of a two-part series with brandon boyd from incubus an absolutely beautiful human inside and out i absolutely love this first part of the interview but i don't want to spoil it and say much more because part two is there right now ready for you to listen to 
So what I want you to do now is to jump straight onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music or Podomatic or however you listen to podcasts and get straight onto episode two. It follows this perfectly, focuses all on his beautiful artwork. We get to discuss his mental health, my mental health, the best ways of dealing with stress, anxiety, and so much more. So I'm going to leave it there and say, please meet me for part two. We're ready and waiting when you are, and I can't wait to speak to you all in just a few moments' time. Bye.